0: In Mark chapter number 12, Uh, we're going to begin reading in verse number 18 and we'll read down through verse number 27. And uh, let's find our place there and stand together in honor of the Word of God this morning. Mark chapter number 12, verses 18 through 27, this composes the central passage of this text. It's the, the central thing that the text is building up to and the text will run away from as we finish this passage of Scripture Um, He's walking into this, and this is the question of the resurrection, and uh, what a central text it is. And so let's read it together uh, thoughtfully this morning. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they ask him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, if a man's brother die, and leave his wife behind, and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed, and the second took her and died, neither left he any seed, and the third likewise, and the seven had her and left no seed, and last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall be? Shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering and said unto them, Do you not therefore err? Because you know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God. When they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake uh, unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, He therefore do greatly err. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can draw instruction from it. Lord, may we be students of the word this morning. But Father, I pray that we would not just fill our heads this morning with what we need to know. But Father, our hearts would be stirred and our hands and our feet would be moved to action this morning. And Lord, help us, Lord, to step out in faith on what your word has to say today. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask all these things. Man, you can be seated there. I never come to this text of Scripture without thinking of a little uh, humorous antidote that, I was, that was read for me when I was uh, just a kid growing up in church. And uh, it always comes to my mind when I read this passage of Scripture because of the line in it. Um, just for context of what this is, this is the story of a guy not getting the Bible story exactly right. And maybe confusing a few Bible stories together. So those of you that know your Bibles well, you might pick up a few different stories in this. And some of you uh, that you're maybe just new to it, uh, you might hear one or two things in this that resonate. This is meant to be humorous. Here's the story. A church council is examining a candidate for membership. One of the questions they ask him is, what part of the Bible do you like best? I like the New Testament, he responded. What part of the New Testament do you like? I like the book of parables. And he said, well, would you kindly relate one of those parables to us? So the uncertain candidate bluffed as follows. Once upon a time, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the thieves. And the thorns grew up and choked him. And he went on and met Queen Sheba. And she gave him a thousand talents of gold and silver and a hundred changes of raiment. And he got his chariot and he drove furiously and when he was driving under the juniper tree his hair got caught in a limb and left him hanging there. And he hung there for many days and many nights and the ravens brought him food to eat and drink. And one night while he was hanging there asleep his wife Delilah came and cut his hair off. And he dropped and fell on stony ground. And it began to rain and it rained 40 days and 40 nights and he hid himself in a cave. And he went on and met a man who said, come in and take supper with me. But he said, I cannot come. I have married a wife. And the man went out of the highways and byways and compelled him to come. And he went on and came to Jerusalem, and he saw in Jerusalem the Queen Jezebel sitting high up in the window. When she saw him, she laughed, and he said, throw her down out of there. And they threw her down. And he said, throw her down again. And they threw her down again. he said, throw her down 70 times seven. (laughs) And of the fragments that remain, they picked up twelve baskets full. <laughs> now the question remains: whose wife will she be in the day of judgment? There was no one on the council who felt qualified to question the candidate, Father, for each council member suspected their own unorganized Bible knowledge was as sketchy as his, so they voted him in for membership. <laughs> so, but uh, hopefully we get a little more clarity this morning than that story left us with. Um, so we approached this text this morning and we're reminded that we're on the journey to the cross. We're moving in a direction and the Lord has been going this direction uh, all along. It's not a second thought with the Lord to go to the cross, but it was his purpose for coming. He came to lay down his life for our sins. Um, and he is walking toward the cross right now. There's continued questions coming at him now designed to trip him up they would expose truth for being something less than truth. Here's the thing to remember this morning, that no matter how many times the hammer of human intellect strikes against the word of God, it will not scar the anvil of God's word. God's word stands firm. It will not be changed. It will not be altered. And when time is no more and the kingdoms of men have passed away, God's word will will endure. And so we stand upon that truth this morning. So the Sadducees come to the forefront here in our text. This is a new sect of people as we're reading through the book of Mark. I want you to break it down this way and I'll remind you of it as we go. The Sadducees, the setup, the question, the error, the presented question answered, and the real question answered. And so we'll walk through the text in that way this morning. And so the Sadducees, who are the Sadducees? Who are these men that have gathered together? And we see in verse number 18, and then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection, and they ask him, say. So these Sadducees, whoever they are, they deny the resurrection's existence. They don't believe the resurrection happens. As a matter of fact, we find from other passages of Scripture that they deny the presence of angels and supernatural Um, They were uh, a ruling class of Jews, and so they carried uh, political weight in the economy they were in, uh, and many would have sat on the Sanhedrin. They were conservative in a religious way in that they would only take the plain reading of the text and nothing more, and they denied any possibility of a resurrection or an afterlife. Another thing is they would only hold to the first five books of the Bible as being completely authoritative. The rest of the Bible was kind of, or the rest of the Old Testament rather at that time would have been uh, under scrutiny in their mind. The Pharisees, they were ritualist and we see them in their rituals all throughout the book of Mark and if the Pharisees were ritualist then the Sadducees were rationalist. They wanted to see it, they wanted to understand it, they wanted to be able to examine it and break it down and so they concluded that the soul of man does not survive the body Simply when you die, that's it. You're done. And this is what they held to. So you have a three score and ten to live, and once that's over with, you cease to exist, your soul ceases to exist, and you're no more. That's a pretty empty way of looking at life. There's no hope in that. They claim no clear instruction of the Old Testament pointed to a resurrection. And they were direct opposition to the Pharisees. I pointed out in Acts chapter 23, and I want to point you there to it this morning, and I'm going to turn there this this hour. But in Acts 23, the Apostle Paul finds himself in a little bit of hot water. And in this text, he is trying to give an account of what he believes, and he is confronted with the high priest who smites him on the mouth, and Paul responds, It's, it's kind of a humorous exchange here. Verse number 2 of chapter 23 says, And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by to smite him on the mouth. And then Paul said unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For thou sittest to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. And they that stood by revilest thou God's high priest. And said, Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees, and the other part, Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope of the resurrection of the dead I am called in question. And when he said so, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. So the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force. And so Paul uses the division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees to get him out of some hot water. He basically pits them against each other in their argument where they were focused on him. He says, no, I'm a Pharisee. I'm for the resurrection. And the Pharisees went to his defense immediately and the Sadducees and the Pharisees got arguing with each other and Paul kind of slips out the back door. And so these were in hot debate against one another. The Sadducees have come and they set up the question. And here's the setup in verses 19 through 22. It's a very long setup that they're trying to entrap him with mosaic law and ritual and so look if you would in verse number 19 moses master moses wrote unto us if a man's brother die and leave his wife behind and leave no children that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed to his brother now when we read that at first blush it kind of goes what 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 is that why why and the, the Jewish law was very clear. And as a matter of fact, if you wanted to do some homework in it, you could look at Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 6, where this law is spelled out for them. But the, the whole premise of this was a Mosaic law. But I want you to point out how they first address him as master. How many believe, based upon what we've seen from these people, that they really thought of him as a master? Or a good teacher? Or a rabbi? And yet they use this title almost perfunctorily toward him and then they say Moses. They appeal to the law not to learn, but to expose perceived errors in the teaching of Jesus. We're going to use Moses, and we're going to trip you up with Moses, and you'll have nothing to argue back with now. So they refer to what we know as the Levirate Law. Now, the word leveret comes from the Latin word leverai, which means brother-in-law, and that's where we get the word leveret law. It literally means that a brother-in-law was to have a responsibility to his sister-in-law if his brother died without bearing children. And the idea of this was to preserve the name of the elder son in the line and lineage, And to keep that line moving forward. This was God's order for this. There was also an idea that the inheritance not pass out of the families, but it stay in the families. And also there's an economic reason why. Because in that day you would have no social security, you would have no pension checks, and there in many ways was no way for a woman to make an income in their economy. And so if a woman had no children, she was left destitute. And so the responsibility of raising up children to that woman because that would be her insurance for old age of someone to come along and care for her. And this was God's purpose. Now, as often is the case, what they want to take is God's purpose and plan and stretch it to its farthest conceivable point and say, see, that doesn't work. And they want to make light of it by stretching the point even further. So... What was meant to be an insurance and a perpetuation is now being used to trip up the Lord, or they're trying to. So, what takes place? He said, Here's what happens. This one young man, he marries a wife and he has no children and he dies. And so, being the dutiful brother, his second oldest brother, uh, his next younger brother, marries the wife, has no children, and he dies. Then the third one comes along, has no children, and dies. If I were the fourth one, I would have been scared the fourth one marries her has no children and dies the fifth one the sixth one the seventh one marries her has no children and dies and i think it's interesting too in their account here in verse number 22 last of all the woman also died also yeah. after that ordeal i think that would probably be a bit of a relief for her and uh, so she's done that was quite the ordeal so all of them now are dead and they ask the question, and they put this out in a way, they think, we got him now. Because what confusion is there going to be if they all resurrect, and they're looking around for, hey, where's my wife? Whose wife's she going to be? And so they ask the question in verse number 23. Look at the verse 23 with me. In the resurrection, that phrase there, I think, needs some consideration. These men are referring to something they don't believe in. They don't believe in the resurrection, they deny the resurrection, and yet they're referring to something they don't believe in. I think this needs to be read with a tone of mockery. I I think we need to see, at least in the heart of these men, they were making light of the resurrection, not affirming it. These men believed the resurrection to be a fairy tale. And they're like, okay, so in your resurrection thing, in your resurrection, whose wife would she be? It's a mockery. It'd be like if, you know, one of your buddies told you they saw a UFO. And you didn't believe them. Now, if you believe in UFOs, you don't have to tell me after church, all right? Yeah, I don't need to know. That's all good. You're, you're happy to believe that. But if somebody said, I saw a UFO, you might look at them and go, so you saw a UFO? Okay, Billy Bob, did it have sparkly lights on it? You know? And you might mock them as you describe their UFO. And you might talk down a bit. I think this is what they were doing with the Lord. I think they were mocking and making light of the resurrection. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For all married her and none had children with her. It was always a question to entrap Jesus, not to illuminate truth. They appealed to Moses here, but their appeal to Moses was not for truth to be discovered, but to get their point across. I, I, I associate the way they appeal to Moses in this text here, a much like we appeal to science in our modern society. We appeal to science when it agrees with us, and we deny science when it disagrees with us. And we, we appeal to science. We look through some kind of huge telescope. See, it looks like water is running down this mountain on some planet long, long away. That's proof there's life there. But somehow or another, if you look through an ultrasound, that's not proof that there's life there. And it's, it's, a, it's a denial of truth when it's inconvenient to hold on to truth. It's not really a seeking of truth that they're having here. It's like, well, somehow or another science can tell us that the earth is warming up and that global warming is happening. You said, Pastor, you believe global warming? Yes, I do. I believe in global warming. The Bible says the earth will melt with the fervent heat of the Lord. God's going to sustain the earth until he's done with it, folks. We should be good stewards. We should be good caretakers of what God's given us. But God will sustain the earth until he's done. And we can rest in that. But we can look at science and say, it shouldn't shock us to find out that things are deteriorating. That ought not surprise us at all. Sure, this planet is deteriorating. It's running down. Sin tells us that. Everything's getting worse and worse, not better and better. So we can use science to tell us that and go, wow, this is amazing. But somehow or another, the same science can't tell us what a boy and a girl is. And we ignore science when it's inconvenient and we embrace it when it is. And, I, and by the way, Christian, let us not do the same thing where we embrace Scripture where it agrees with us and we reject it where it disagrees. But let's say, here's the thing. The Bible is true. And if I'm, I'm not in line with scripture, then the scripture's right and I'm wrong. And so here, they're appealing to Moses, they're saying, hey, Moses said this. Jesus points out their error. Look at verse number 24, where Jesus responds, and Jesus answering said unto them, do ye therefore err, do ye not therefore err, because you know not the scripture, neither the power of God. He said, here's the reason why you're mistaken. You do not know the scripture, and you do not know the power of God. And he just goes right at it. You don't know the scripture, you don't know God's power. Jesus cuts to the chase. This is, and by the way, this is not just the reason they err, but it's the reason we err. It's because we don't know the scripture, and we don't know the power of God. And I would contend to you this morning, church, that you will never believe the power of God until you believe the word of God. That the word of God always precedes the power of God. Now, what I mean by that is that we, we, we want God to show us something spectacular and then we'll believe. Here's the thing, faith, then sight. And I think we reverse this often. Well, you know, pastor, if God could show me something really incredible, then I would believe. If God could do something supernatural, then i believe. Let's see, maybe if God had a group of people who saw the Red Sea parted, and food on the ground every morning, and quail in the evening, and water from a rock, and the earth opening up, swallowing up God's enemies, if they could see all those things, they would never doubt God, right? Now, it, Here's the reality. Supernatural doesn't confirm faith. It's faith in the Word of God. That, the fact that you can believe the Word of God is a supernatural act. And that fact has to precede it. We believe the word of God, and then we can see what God is doing in the supernatural. Even Jesus, when he's talking in John 16, 31, what does he say? Rich man, opened up his eyes, being in torment. He said, send Lazarus, let him dip his finger in water, and put it on my tongue, for I'm tormented in these flames. He said, he can't come to you, you can't go to him. There's a great gulf fixed. You know the parable, the account. I believe it's a literal account. And then he says, well, send Lazarus back to my brothers and tell them not to come here. And what was Jesus' response to him? He wanted a supernatural act to overcome their doubt. And Jesus' response is, they have Moses and the prophets. If they will not hear them, they will not believe though one came back from the dead. This morning, let us put the word of God where our faith rests, and then we will believe the power of God and see the power of God at work. He comes at them in full force. He said, you err because you don't know the scriptures, because you don't know the power of God. Now I want you to see him answering the presented question. Um, Jesus rejects the premise of their question in the first place. He said, you're supposing somehow or another that the only means of sustaining life is procreation. And that somehow or another, that's the only purpose of sustaining life. Ultimately, it is God that sustains life. He's the one that keeps it going. This is the one that's going to keep the generations going. And then the question would sit there, who has said that things will be in eternity as they are now? You see, the gift of marriage is for this side of eternity, not for eternity. And it is a gift on this side of eternity that has pictures and types and shadows of what is coming. When they shall rise, Jesus says. He didn't say if they shall rise. He says when they shall rise. He is affirming the fact that the resurrection is a reality. It's going to take place. Christ affirms the reality of the resurrection. It was a foregone conclusion in his mind. And he says, and when they rise... They will not be given in marriage or taken in marriage. He says in uh, verse number 25, let's look at it. Jesus answering, do you not therefore err because you know not the scripture? Verse 25, for when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And that's left us with a bit of um, ambiguity. So when we go to heaven, we're going to be angels. It's not what it says. We do err because we don't know the scripture. He doesn't say we will be angels. He said you'll be like the angels or as the angels. And this picture here is not, and I'm glad to report to you today, that you're not going to go to heaven and have to earn your wings, play a harp, and wear a large diaper. That's not going to be eternity for you. Um, I'm glad to say that we are physical beings that will be resurrected with physical bodies, and we will live eternally in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he will dwell with us. And eternity will be on a new heaven and a new earth, and all of that is promised For us in the future. And we can rejoice in that. Um, But the angels. What is he saying? He's saying not like the angels. I think not like or like them rather. In the context of marriage and procreation. That this is not God's purpose into eternity. Now I think maybe some of us might think here. Well somehow then we have less in eternity. Because we're losing out on this sweet relationship of marriage. Somehow or another, what earth has is better than what heaven will have. And if we're not careful, we can, and, and by the way, thank God for the sweetness of the marriage relationship. Thank God, men, for our wives. Thank God for my wife and the love and the affirmation that she brings to me. And it, I'll be honest with you, it is hard for me to comprehend what could be better. Now, some may not have that same experience, and you may think, well, no, I I could imagine eternity being far better, and we could see that, but I think I, I often get the question, right, of someone who's lost a spouse, will my husband know me there? Will my wife know me there? And absolutely, the answer is yes, they will know you, and you will know them. We will see them and we will know them as they are. We will recognize them for who they are. And we will be able to appreciate the relationship that we had here on earth. And by the way, I think we're going to know them far better than we do now. There will be a heightened understanding of knowing who they are far more than we can comprehend here. Let me assure you that here we only relate through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Then we see them truly face to face. Nothing will be lost, but the picture that marriage portrays will be fulfilled. So we're not looking about the doing away with, with marriage, but the fulfilling of what marriage is pointing us to. And marriage is pointing us to the fact that Christ has purchased the church with his own blood and he has redeemed a bride to himself that is set apart and holy for himself and there will be a union like nothing we can comprehend. You see, marriage is only a temporary union and is a shadow of an eternal union that is far more glorious than anything the best of marriages here have enjoyed on this side of eternity. It is far more there. Marriage is more than a utilitarian arrangement for mutual benefit but it is also far less than the eternal reality that it represents. Marriage is a momentary union with eternal implications. And Jesus is putting it in its proper context, in its proper place. In the resurrection there is not marriage or giving in marriage. And here's the reality I I think every man in this room, you desire to love your wife as Christ loves the church. And if you don't, I would call you to that this morning. I would call you to love your wife as you love yourself. And we would pour ourselves into that relationship sacrificially. But in that, here's the reality, men, and you you and I are both very, very well aware of how short we fall at that goal. And we come so far away from hitting that mark. And that's why heaven gives me great hope. Because Susie's never been loved like she's going to be loved when the resurrection takes place. And so what I pray for will be realized when the trumpet sounds. Because she will know the unmitigated love of Christ and it will not have to pour through Mike Montgomery anymore. It will not come through broken vessels. But we will know it because we will see him face to face. There'll be a summary and a fulfilling of all that marriage points to. So don't hear Jesus cheapening marriage or making marriage less than what it is, less than what it is. It is a beautiful, wonderful, temporary picture that is pointing to an eternal and substantive relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is challenging us here in this. And he said, You don't know the scripture. You don't know the power of God. And that's why you've erred. And he said, so let's get to the real question that you're asking. Here's the real question you're asking. How many of you know that some people ask a question and there's a question underneath the question? Hey, Dad, you know I love you, right? <laughs> okay, what do you want? <laughs> because you know that's not the question. There's a question behind the question. And you're like, oh, you love me. Well, keep my commandments. Clean your room. Um, it's It's... There is, a, there is a question behind the question. It goes underneath the surface of it. I love Jesus and his responses here. Verse 26. And it's touching the dead that they rise. Have you not read the book of Moses? Now mind you, this group of Sadducees, they hang everything they believe on Moses' five books. They, are, they, they count themselves as the experts of the book of Moses, Right? And Jesus goes, "Hey guys, there's a book. I wonder if you've read them. Moses wrote them, and it's just—it's almost like he's just laying that out in front of them. Hey, have you heard? Have you guys read Moses at all? And he lays this out in front of them. Jesus takes the shot. He takes the time. He takes them to their own source and points out the problem with their argument. He takes them to Exodus chapter number three. In Exodus chapter three, Abraham, uh, or rather, uh, Moses is coming before the, the burning bush. The burning bush, he sees it off in the distance as he's keeping Jethro's flock, and he sees it, it's it's burning, but it's not consumed, and he begins to approach it, and as he gets closer, he hears the voice of God, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, and he stands there before a holy God, and we've seen the pictures painted, maybe in the family Bibles, with his hand covering himself from the brightness as he stands before God. And the question is, Who am I going to tell them you are? Tell them I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I I think this is the important thing to see. The, The scriptures are not flippant or casual or careless in what is put in the text. But it's intentional and purposeful and meaty. what's setting here. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, if he, present tense, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have not ceased to exist. They're somewhere, they're alive and well. Notice the accuracy of God's word. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And he makes the argument here, you're looking for an excuse to deny the resurrection. And I'm telling you, even Moses points to the fact that those who believed in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He's pointing them to the resurrection. The real question is in front of him. What claim would it be for God to call himself the God of Abraham if Abraham had ceased to exist when his body died? I mean, what boast is that? Because you could do that with somebody. I'll be your God. And you cease to exist when you die. There's no power in that kind of God. There's no strength in that deity. What hope would it leave us with this morning? if, If Jacob was just a pile of desert sand somewhere scattered throughout the millennia now. And here he just lays somewhere in the desert floor. And there is no continued existence of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Jesus is pointing out to them and he says it in such bold terms here I am the god of Abraham the god of Isaac the god of Jacob he is not the god of the dead but the god of the living these are alive and well and it, this morning when we see this if if they are if if they are not living then god has not been faithful and kept his promises but they are alive in the well and he is the god of the living he is you understand this morning you have a loved one in heaven I want you to picture them in your mind. If you know them as a believer, they are alive and well and one day you will see them and know who they are. That that. That ought to challenge our thinking. It ought to get us to look away from this world and into the next world. One day I'm going to see them face to face. I will embrace them again. And these arms will hold them and I will feel them in my arms again. That is the reality of the resurrection that Jesus is preaching. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. That's the hope we have, by the way. That's what the gospel brings to us, that only through Jesus Christ do we have that hope. You don't have that hope through your good works. You don't have that hope through through your church membership or through a baptistry. You have that hope because you understand you were a sinner bound to a Christless hell, and Jesus Christ came to where you were. He died for your sins, and he calls you to himself. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's where our hope rests this morning. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean that God has not been faithful. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Hebrews real quick. Hebrews chapter 11. The hall of faith. Many of you know this chapter well. Some of you may be able to quote several verses from this chapter. Hebrews chapter number 11 Just because we cannot see the promises now doesn't mean that God is not faithful. Look what he says in verse 13. Talking of all these giants of the faith in the past, these all died in faith, not having received the promise, and having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had an opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city." He said they died in faith. They were on the journey to where God had called them, but they didn't receive the fullness of the promise yet. They didn't get the full package yet. They're still a promise anticipated for those who have died that they have yet to receive. You understand that? Our loved ones that are in the grave today, I believe to be absent from the body is be present with the Lord. But they're waiting for a day when their body will be resurrected and the soul and the body be reunited. And they died not having received the promise of the resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And one day there'll be a resurrection The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And Paul starts that whole passage off when he says this, I declare unto you the resurrection. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. You say, preacher, why does the Lord show up at the resurrection? Because he's holding us in John I am the resurrection and the life. If the Lord doesn't show up, there is no resurrection. He is the resurrection. The promise, the fulfillment of everything they were looking forward to back there is the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrected, called-out assembly of God's people throughout all ages. And by the way, it's not done yet. Look at the end of this chapter. Verse 39. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Why? God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect or complete. The work's not done yet. The race is not finished. The time is not at hand. One day... All this will be done, and we will receive the fullness of the promise of everything that He has promised in Christ. And so, preacher, what do we do now? Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run the race with patience, run with patience the race that is set before us. So, here we are, we're on this journey, we can look back and say Abraham is alive and well, Isaac is alive and well, Jacob is alive and well, David is alive and well. I can walk through the history of people, and I can look back, and I can see those who have gone before and know that they are alive and well, and one day I will see them face to face again. But here's the most important thing. Jesus is the resurrection. He is alive and well, and one day he will return, and all the promises will be fulfilled in him. And so right now what do we do? We're running the race with a great cloud of witnesses. And we continue to do the work that God has called us to do. So what do we do today? In conclusion, Jesus looks at them. In verse number, uh, I've got to go back to Mark. Verse number 27. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You therefore do greatly err. Or I think the ESV says you are very wrong. You are very wrong. You're missing it. So how do we avoid the error? Know the scripture. Know the power of God. Read the Word of God. Study the Word of God. Listen to the Word of God. Think on it. Meditate on the Word of God and obey the Word of God. Then we can believe the power of God. Here's the thing. If you don't believe the Word of God, you will find a reason to explain away the power of God. But when we believe the Word of God, we can see the power of what a miracle it is that God would open our eyes that we could see the truth of God's word and see his work. He is the God of the living. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your word or thank you for the sufficiency of Your of the scriptures. Lord, I pray, Father, that what is said today would bring honor and glory to you. But Lord, I pray, Father, what is done outside the walls of this church would continue to redound to your glory and your praise. Father, thank you for these dear people. Week in and week out, they come, they sit, they listen with their Bibles open, their eyes focused, their ears attuned. Lord, I pray, Father, that you'd help us, Lord, to be laborers in your harvest this week. We'll praise you for what you're doing. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.